Okay, everybody, thank you for tuning in to episode eight of Dano Says So. Um, today, I am interviewing an old, old friend. Um, so many of the people we're interviewing on this thing are old, old friends, but John is truly someone I ran with, shot pool with, you know, cried late at night to and everything else, which was an interesting way to end up because I initially found out about John and met John as a person simply because I was in awe of his work. Now, about that work, John is not the most recognizable face in the counterculture, but his work is some of the most recognizable because his skill set is extremely varied, his technique is impeccable, and the places that he's applied that technique, Maximum Rock and Roll, Alternative Tentacles, his own label, Allied, his books are highly visible and highly impressive. So, John Yates, thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. All right. So, talking about technique that's impeccable, talking about highly recognizable work, you got a lot of attention lately for your take on the Blue Note series, doing the punk note cover knockoffs. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, well, relatively new to Instagram. I think I, I think I made my first post in February, and uh, okay. I've been encouraged to do that just to try and get myself out there a little bit more. Reluctantly gave into social media, which I'm not particularly connected with, but. Uh, I figured it was an outlet, you know, I mean, it's just like uh, somewhere to just spout off and soapbox. For somebody, for somebody who's as visual as you are, I think it'd be addicting or somehow a business or psychological necessity. Well, that's the thing. I had, I had resisted it for a long time. I had an account for like maybe five years before I even used it. So okay. um, that and my Twitter account, which I've used like three times in five years as well, I think. But um, no, so I did actually become, I did kind of get sucked into it. Um, and so then, so I was starting to do that on a sort of fairly regular basis. Um, and then the pandemic hit and then lockdown started and then I lost my job. And then a few days later, I lost my longtime girlfriend. So I was kind of spiraling and uh, I needed something to really dive into on a daily basis to give me um, something to do and just keep me distracted, honestly. So I kind of, in the past, on a couple of projects, records that came out, the Lifetime one, Jersey's Best Dancers, for example, I had previously sort of toyed with the whole Blue Note aesthetic. I mean, mm -hmm. I grew up um, spending weekends with my brother and my grandparents and they were big jazz fans, mostly big band, but there was some Blue Note stuff in the house, I remember which was kind of unusual because they're very white, very English, very elderly. Um, but they just had this um, affinity for jazz. So um, I had sort of, I vaguely remembered it when I was older and certainly not in my sort of youth punk rock years. I mean, I definitely was just very tunnel visioned at that point. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've, you know, certainly in the last 20, 30 years, I've definitely sort of rediscovered my love of jazz um and certainly the blue note aesthetic was always something that really spoke to me um, See, to so. me it kind of matched to me it kind of matched your skill set a lot of your really technical sort of fine line work and your sort of exacting style so i could have seen you going into it purely with an appreciation for that but hearing that you actually like the old stuff is interesting because then you get to a you get to apply one love to another you know yeah yeah um it was it, it, it definitely you know i'm definitely 
if I'm nothing else, as far as a graphic designer goes, mm -hmm. I'm a very good mimic. Like I can take pretty much any style and reproduce it to serve my hands. Um, and some would argue, some would argue I've, I've made an entire career out of that, but come on, uh, you know, what it, that is what it is. But um, no, it was just something that I really had, I sort of had a lot of notes on, on that project that I'd wanted to get to for ages. And I just hadn't had the time. Um, and so I literally just decided, okay, I need something to do. So I just dived in and um, basically in two weeks, I, I came up with like, I think 270 total. So the sheer volume of them, Martin Sprouse and I were talking about how the sheer volume of them was amazing. You know, yeah, without, really, without really a dip in quality. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here and say you developed a few methods and a few go-tos and were able to just keep stirring the pot and, and applying. It seems to me like there's this in your brain now, there's got to be this, this the Blue Note folder. You know, these are, these, these are some of the critical elements in, re, in, in, in recreating that imagery. Or maybe I'm yeah. wrong. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's absolutely. I mean, once you, once you sort of understand Reed Miles is, um, is, is aesthetic, once you understand that and, and recognize it, I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, there, there's, there's maybe a dozen typefaces he worked with, you know, certain colorways. Um, so it, yeah, you, you sort of get, you get a system down pretty quickly. So 270 in two weeks sounds like a lot. And then there were also a bunch of outtakes. Like for, for a lot of those covers, I did maybe three to four different ones and ended up just publishing the ones that I was most happy with. So there are definitely you know, outtakes per se. Well, it's fantastic work. And I definitely want you to send me, you know, four or five favorites for me to flash over the screen while this conversation is going on. You know, while we're, while we're discussing the pieces, I'd like people to see what they're talking about because it's, it's clearly remarkable. Okay. Um, yeah. Are any of them actually going to be used for any reissues or anything like that? The only reason I ask is because we both know that I immediately went begging to you right. to you do something for my band in that exact vibe. And, right. You know, I'd like to believe I'm one of the first to the well. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, actually, it was funny. Two bands or two, well, two labels did approach me. Um, one was um, Dekreutzen. They were doing okay. a reissue of their first, like, I think, cassette demo. And so mm -hmm. digital only. So they wanted a digital cover and they wanted to just use the one I'd used in, in, the, in the series. And that was great. You know, it was fun. I was a fan of them for a long time. Well, certainly the early stuff. Um, so that was cool. Um, and then out of the blue, a label who is working with Bad Brains contacted me. So I'm actually going to be doing the Bad Brains covers for very, very limited edition vinyl. Those will be incredible. But is, is dealing with that operation a little bit of a sticky wicket or would you rather not go into it? In, in, what, in what way? I, I just imagine business, with, for some reason, I imagine business with the Bad Brains being incredibly complicated. Well, it, it, that may well be the case. I'm dealing strictly with the label that's helped them. They're basically doing a, a sub label for Bad Brains to release their stuff through. Okay. So they're serving as like the umbrella label. Um, and um, they're doing reissues uh, you know, exactly as they originally were. And then they're doing a 500, possibly a thousand run of my blue note covers okay, for the bad brains that's rare but that's not as rare as it used to be man you move a, you move a thousand records nowadays yeah. you don't really need to be ashamed i know i know but it would it will be really cool just to see those realized it may not be the same photography just because of rights issues and stuff like that so mm -hmm. um and you know some it's not a it's not a particularly big label so obviously they can you know 
their budget only goes so far. So and licensing a, a Glenn Friedman photo is never going to happen on their budget. You know, it's um, okay. sadly, but you know, and, and I recognize that, but um, I didn't have any requirements when I just chose photography because I was mm. never going to make anything commercial out of it. So, right. uh, you know, it was never, I mean, my one regret about the series was that I should have credited every photographer that I used on the on, in the post and i you know i feel bad about that i should have done that no, hey man instagram, instagram is editable but you did 200 of the damn things <laughs> yeah i know also this there was only so many that i actually could source and find out who the photographer was so you okay. know, it's just... well so we're sitting here and we're talking about these 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 punk these these blue note interpretations of punk rock records but the fact of the matter is on your own label and for alternative tentacles you've created the packaging for a lot of notable rebel music that, to me, segues well into the fact that when left to your own devices on Instagram, anywhere else, even in your books, you tend to do very subversive and very provocative work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely like to, I definitely like to um, stir that pot as much as possible, even, mm -hmm. if it's all, even if it's only just to get a conversation started. I mean, really, that's that, all my that work. Was my, that, you're asking my follow-up for me. I was going to say, to what ends? Yeah, I mean, that's always been the sort of backstory behind all my work is just like, like, is this something that can start a conversation? It doesn't have to be someone that agrees with me. It doesn't have to be something that is lockstep with what, I, what I'm saying. It's just like, is that going to spark a conversation? And I think that's a lot of, a lot of what the, the best sort of sociopolitical artwork does, whether it be, you know, and typically I've always, you know, I mean, I came out of, punk rock in the UK and I was like I was you know I was a crass addict I followed Discharge the first band I picked up from on from the US was Dead Kennedys and that was because I always had a really strong political bent and that's just been my upbringing you know my grandfather was a was a staunch socialist which is a negative term in this country but over there in Europe it was really not you know just uh, but he was a lifelong socialist and um, I had many 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 pep talks from him as a kid yeah. um so i think that really just kind of sank in and um i've always kind of wanted i've always kind of tried to say something with what i'm doing it, mm -hmm. it might not be everyone's cup of tea it might not be um something that's you know, it might be a little obtuse at times i definitely think i can go there sometimes but your yeah, voice I, can, to me your voice can at times and i'm talking about your visual voice it can be at times british your, your take on the language is not always is not always immediately available to, available to me that's extremely rare but i never right. find you being particularly obtuse what i find amazing is that you can get involved in these very highly technical pieces you've done work for me that only takes you moments but was so far beyond my skill set it wasn't even funny and then you can do things like, you know, America, we deliver, uh, there's an American Bible Belt, pieces like that. They're incredibly simple, but they hit like hammers. Do you have a preference one way or the other? I mean, you know, um, in, terms of, in terms of construction? Right. Um, no, I think it's, I mean, typically, um, typically how I, I work one of two ways. It's either I come up with um like a phrase first and then I try and visualize it or I come up with a visual and then I try to put words to it depending on what message I'm trying to send, I guess. Right. Um, so it can work either way, but um, less is always more. Um, and the English aspect to it, I guess is, is natural just given that that's who, where I'm from. But 
Um, also, I think it's also a product of a different education system. Um, it's a well, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a linguistic fiend. I'm hypersensitive to the way people speak and to their choice of words. And it's if you'd ever met my mother, it'd make all the sense in the world. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, th I think it's I think it's just um, just a pro just basically a product of that upbringing. Also, I you know I mean my my grandfather used to always um, you know I was I got exposure to like um, Spy Magazine, which is a was a satirist publication in the UK that was very political, kind of like a published version of Spitting Image, but not in that you know I don't know if anyone knows what Spitting Image is these days, but um, it was, you know, I so don't think, I don't think our viewership is going to be a lot of 19 year olds. I don't think we need to worry. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, you know, it's like, it's the same as growing up with like Python or all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's that, this, this political undercurrent in all their work, you know, it might be hilarious and it's certainly translated across the Atlantic, but you know, it, at the, the fundamental core of that is, is, is class structure and politics and, but handled in a humorous way. And while right. my work has humor in it, albeit in a dark nature, some of it, um, I think that, that is important also is to me. Sarcasm, sarcasm is, sarcasm. knows your stuff pretty well. Sarcasm is yeah. a key element that works beautifully. Yeah. Yeah, sarcasm, I think really sell, can sell, you know, I really, like it's like people either, especially here, they either love or they loathe Ricky Gervais, you know, it's like, as one example, and he's like, very true, very true. He's like the vanguard right now of like how, of how <laughs> British sarcasm works, you know, and it's just so, and it really teeters on that edge of offense or not offense. And so um, I really enjoy that aspect. And I think, um, you know, while I'm, Clearly not Ricky Gervais. I mean, I'm definitely, I think I have that, you know, that background, that English background where sarcasm and politics are very much intertwined. Right. Well, let's take the Dano says so John Yates machine to England now. You gave me a good segue. So, I mean, I'd like to hear, you know, some encapsulization of, of your education, particularly of your education in this, you know, in, in art, in graphic arts and whatever, right. and just the path, because, you know, you mentioned, a lot of things just in passing already in this interview that we're all familiar with, but didn't have a lot of, a lot of people in the States had very much up close exposure to, you know, you were obsessed with bands that I've covered and never been in the same room with. So, you know, let's hear about, let's hear about pre-America John Yates, and then we'll get into some of the amazing things you were involved in over here. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I did, I did, I did, I didn't go to art school, but I went to two, two year, um, technical colleges we call them in the UK so okay. um and had you know graduated both those one was sort of a general art history graphic design printmaking ceramics you know sort of a smorgasbord of of art um okay. pursuits back in the day I mean most of those wouldn't even be taught these days I imagine but um and then the second two-year stint was in editorial um, design and graphics and photography. What does editorial so, design mean? Um, fundamentally, you were tr they were training you to be uh, to work at either newspapers or magazines. You know, okay. so it was it was that yeah, was the background of that. So, um, and I, I was I was ready to finish the equivalent of high school with with you know basically ready to take my place on unemployment. But um, thanks to my mom, one time at um, sort of parent-teacher night 
took the time to go and check out my work in the art department and the teacher just kind of cornered her and it was just like, you've got to get him into art school. I says like, like, I don't care what you do, just get him into art school. He can do it, you know, and your teacher was I had, right. never, I had never even thought of it. You know, I, I honestly had never even thought of it. I'm just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, like there was nothing that, you know, I, my career as a professional football play, soccer player was never going to happen. So that was choice one and choice two, unemployment, you know, so. I feel was, for you. I never, I was I one never of those weird mixes never, in the UK where it was like, where it was like, you know, I was definitely like hardcore punk rock kid, but also over here, I'd be the equivalent of a total jock as well. Like, cause I, I just well, love sports. No, I remember, I remember that about you when we were both, when we were both living in the Bay Area. Yeah. You know, um, all I was going to say is, yeah, I never, I never got to grow up to be the white Muhammad Ali, so I'm lucky I found punk rock as well. Um, how does John and art school and this 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 undeniable talent that these women saw? How does it find how does it find its way to actual involvement in and contribution to punk rock? Um. Okay, so how did I end up getting like doing what I do? I always kind of want to know what your first punk rock work was. Who was it for? And how did you meet them? Uh, I honestly can't remember. It was probably, it was probably some ad artwork for alternative tentacles. Like they had a London office back when the band was at their, Dead Kennedys were at their peak. They'd started a London office to distribute their records directly there. Um, and I, as a fan, used to buy mail order records from them because they, they, their releases, when they were, all came out with these, two-sided like inserts of of artists from the states that i would never even heard of so i would just right. buy everything based on the cover so you know i'm like buying mdc i'm buying bad brains i'm buying like black flag i'm buying you know whether that's through like letting me jelly beans or something else you know so i'm buying all this stuff because where i grew up was pretty pretty isolated so i had the access to the music press like sounds or enemy but other than that it was you know, there was no, no way of finding out about stuff. It was before I went away to college. It was before I was trading tapes left, right, and center, you know. So, so I ended up, I ended up um, sort of sending little bits of artwork back and forth to the London office of Alternative Tentacles. And unbeknownst to me, they were sort of forwarding it on to Biafra. You know, I was doing a zine at the time, like a little just a Xerox zine of art, my artwork. I would send those every now and again. And, um, so they were using me sporadically to do like ads and some basic stuff like that. And then I think I got a couple of records through them, um, not for alternative tentacles, but through a, the, the, the guy who was running the label for them had another English label. So I did a little bit of work for them and then ended up getting some work through like um, a couple of the, a couple of the UK, like kind of crusty labels. Mm -hmm. Like I did work for like Decadence Within and, you know, some of that Doom, some of that early like yeah. grindcore, crust core from the UK. Um, a lot of high contrast the first black thing and white? Up, huh? A lot of high contrast black and white? Yeah, a lot of high contrast black and white, yeah. I mean, it, it was a, you couldn't afford color back in those days. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and then I ended up, uh, out of the blue, I got contacted by Biafra, one time in the mail and just asked if I would like to help him put together the booklet for DK's swan song compilation, give me convenience or give me death. So 
that was the first thing I officially worked on for alternative tentacles directly. Um, uh, and we did that through the mail. I mean, he would send me clippings and I just basically had to put the pages together and I'd send them back and hope that everything stayed on because it was all just glue and spray, you know, spray mm-hmm. adhesive back then. Um, and uh, send it back in the U.S. mail to him and he'd tweak with it and stuff like that. And then sometimes it would come back and other times he'd just do it there. And then somehow we managed to put that booklet together in the mail. And uh, that was, so that was my first experience. Okay. And then I was, I was going to go out for, um, I decided I was going to visit the States. So I went out for two months to San Francisco in I think summer of uh, 87, okay. 86. Worked for a couple of months quietly under the table for the label, did some work there. Um, and then went back home really kind of crestfallen, you know, I loved it. I mean, it was like, well, it's not the love about the Bay Area. And it was certainly not Thatcher, England, you know, which is definitely what I was living at that time. So the following year, um, Biafra asked if I had any interest in coming out to work for the label full time because they needed an art person. If I could get out there, the job was mine kind of thing. So I just basically gave away or sold everything I had. And I just got on a plane and moved, you know, and I didn't think I was going to stay here forever, but it, that's how it ended up. So in a nutshell, you, I'm 90% sure. And it all blurs together because I've been punched in the head far too many times, but I'm 90% sure we met at maximum rock and roll house. We did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I, so I moved, I moved to the States in about 88 and then I think I moved into MRR about, maybe 89, like the following year or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I lived there on and off t- for two stints at different times, okay. I think. So, yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about that experience? Maximum rock and roll. Maximum rock and roll is an interesting stopover for a lot of colorful personalities and a lot of extremely talented people. Yeah. No, it was, it was great. I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was a really fun time. Um, I could have done without the stupid nickname I was given in the house, but that's another story. I don't remember you having a nickname there. And if you hate it that much, you don't have to share it. <laughs> no, no, it was just, it was just ridiculous. It was like, it was like, so they, they were like, they, they were playing some, I think it was Harry, they were playing heresy or something like that. And I think it was Harry Sherrill, who used to be in Cringer. I think he was there at the time and he was <laughs> looking on the back of the records and he's like, why do all English people have three letter names like Baz and Dez and all this stuff? And I'm just right. like, I don't know. And then everyone was just like, yeah, so what's, what's John? I'm like, it's, it's John because it's like four letters. Right. What's it going to be, Joe? You know, so, so they decided, I think it was Johanan decided, oh, we're going to call him Jaws, J-O-Z. And I got really pissed off, I think, and just stormed off down to my room. But um, it's, it, you know, it, they only used it internally and a couple of times in print, which was kind of. Hey, annoying. man, I, I worked there and it never made it to me, so don't feel too bad. But um, yeah, so no, I, I really enjoyed my time at Maximum. Um, Tim was great. It was great mentor. And, you know, I hadn't even touched a computer until I moved there. And so it was, that was kind of unique, you know, and that was an old Mac two, I think, you know, like a little cube. I um, remember, I remember Maximum Rock, that living room on Clipper street used yeah. to seem like the bridge of the enterprise to me. <laughs> yeah. And now, yeah. now when I remember what was actually in that room and in use, it seems more like the Flintstones. Basically. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if we, if we could have stuck our feet through the floor and just ran, that would have been perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, 
yeah. But no, it was good. You know, there was, there was always people coming and going, whether it be bands staying or just people visiting and, um, or, and then also just the transition of staff, you know, in mm-hmm. and out, like people, sometimes they only stay for a month or two, you know, and it was like, you know, I ended up being there for like, I think maybe two years or something like that. So it varied, but yeah, it was, it was a really cool, fun environment, you know, and it was um, a great, great place to sort of, sort of softly land into the U.S. culture that was, you know, ended up being home. My, my connection there made my, my arrival in the Bay Area easier, and for other reasons that made it harder later, but it was still central. No two ways about it, you know? Yeah. Maximum Rock and Roll, Maximum Rock and Roll was in a lot of ways a nucleus and a lot of things. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, during that time, uh, Ramsey Kanan eventually ended up out in the States. Yes. Right? And yes. that, well, no, and that led to the books. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk a little bit about that, about your your work being compiled in print? Yeah, oh, my books. Yeah. Gotcha. No, not, okay. Yeah. Well, no, Ramsey yeah, well, leads to, Ramsey, all trails Ramsey inevitably lead to books. But yeah, right. I'm, talking about, I'm talking about your work compiled uh-huh. in print. Well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I'd done the sort the zine punchline for uh a few, a couple of years. And, um, so Ramsey, um, an AK press at the time, um, approached me and asked if I'd like to do a book. And that was what became the first book. And that was, you know, that, um, and then subsequently to that, I can, you send me, can you send I, me, can you send me files of the, co- the, co- the covers? Yeah, I can send okay. covers. Yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't, I shouldn't um, interrupt your flow. Anyway, go on. No, okay, no, that's what became the first um, book. So, yeah, so the first book book happened, and then I wasn't doing Punchline anymore after that, but I was still doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really have anywhere to collect that. So, um, subsequently, there were two more books after that. You know, no, and, and none of them really particularly, you know, had much of an impact. I think you're talking 3,000 copies a piece or something like that. But I was on um, tour... I was on tour in South Dakota and pages from your books were blown up on the walls in the, in the main crusty house in that town oh, yeah. where, where speak 714 was crashing. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it got around, you know, and it was, it was fun to do the books. Um, it was fun to do punchline while I did it. Um, it wasn't just me on my own. I would have guest, you know, artists involved as well. I mean, including Martin, you know, and stuff. So, um, but but then, you know, then, then I, I did, then there was a large gap between, I think, publishing the last book and then me really doing much of anything like um, socio-political graphics wise, you know, like what I did that? other things. What, I mean, I sort what, of, no, go, you, 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 question, so I'm not going to ask it. <laughs> I concentrated more on doing other people's books, you know, covers and stuff like that than, than my own stuff. Um, um, and then I haven't really gotten back into it um, until recently with the, with the whole Instagram thing. And that has really kind of given me another sort of outlet, you know, so I've, I've really kind of thrown myself into that. And, and I mean, would I've, you agree, agree that even though the world's always a little bit monkey fucked, there's certainly an embarrassment of riches as far as source material goes right now in America. Yes, sadly, there are, it, it's just endless at this point. Yeah, I mean, you could, 
you know, you could go all day and just generate stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's frightening how easy it is actually right now to do work. Well, one of, I don't know about easy, but one of the things that freaks me out is typically something horrifying can hit the news. Maybe in the last 48 hours, Americans really became aware of, at the time that we're shooting this or recording this, of the unmarked troops that are, you know, stashing people in vans in Portland, right? Yeah, yeah. Was it even 24 or 48 hours before you had pieces referring to that up on Instagram? And they're good pieces. They're not, they're not three words in a photo. They've got, you know, you've got some execution and construction to them. I mean, that's uh, incredibly fast turnaround. Yeah, although I did, the one I did post today about Portland, it actually is a picture in three words. So you're wrong. <laughs> what are you trying to say, Dan? <laughs> but uh, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, I mean, it's like it basically writes itself with this administration, right? I mean, sadly, it's just, uh, but it's also, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's funny to talk about it, but mm -hmm. in a really twisted way, because it's just, it's just so fucking dark. I mean, well, to me, the great potential horror, besides all the present tense shit, and I'd be curious to see what you think, is people tend to underestimate the nastiness of history while it's unfolding right in front of them. You know, like they'll realize that something's fucked, but they won't realize that it's potentially gateway drug, you know, the gateway drug to massive horrors. Right. Do you think it's a very real possibility that if, that if Trump loses in November, he doesn't turn over the office in January? Yeah, I feel it's a very real possibility. Um, even if he's only grandstanding at this point, it, given the sort of um, rabid nature of his base, mm -hmm. and he's already setting them up on that road so that if he does lose, which hopefully he does, but if he does lose, there's the, those seeds of doubt, which do not need any watering, are already out there um, that it's going to be illegitimate. So I think there is potential, not for him to not actually leave office, but for his base to really get scary like way scarier than they are now throughout any political climate in the 30 probably 30 plus years you've been doing this what were the most satisfying pieces what made them satisfying was it the quality of your execution was it the clarity of the message some combination of it you know yeah a combination i mean you know there's you know i mean there's always my air quotes classics you know like i like i'm still pre you know I'm my own, my own worst critic when it comes to my work, and there's a lot of stuff that I, I, I honestly could care less. I mean, if I ever saw it again, but there are some that you know really mm -hmm. I think I've either stood the test of time or sadly because they're relevant. Um, but also they just they just they were just effective and simple. You know, like the democracy with the liver or American okay. Bible Belt or um, any record covers that work for you more than others. Record covers, yeah. I mean, I think, I think probably if I had to list off some of my favorites in terms of like how they how they turned out and how they stood up. Um, certainly, all the collaborations that I used to do with Adam for Jawbreaker. You know, I'm particular. You know, I'm very proud of those. I mean, those are those were always fun projects, and it was a joy to work with Adam and the band to put those together. So those have always they hold a really dear place in my heart for those mm -hmm. ones. Um, the Lifetime Records. Yeah. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, the work I did with Alkaline Trio, I think the series of records I did with them for a few years, um, 
I'm really happy with those. I also it was one of the rare occasions when they were, you know, working with a major label where you had a big, big budget. So I got to do a couple of special editions, which were kind of blowout. And that was really fun because in my world, you don't get to work with those kind of budgets much. So that was really nice, you know, so, um, and they, you know, you know, they came out really nicely. Um, and then one of the ones I've been most happy with recently in the, within the last like two or three years is this, just this tiny little band from North, Eastern France that I did artwork for it's called Red Gloves. Um, I don't think they're even around anymore, but maybe they are. I'm not sure, but um, I did two singles and an album for them, and they were thematic. And honestly, it's some of my and some of the work I'm most happy with. You know, it's okay, so for the purposes of this thing, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you an email, and I'm gonna watch this tape, and I'm gonna see the stuff that you mentioned that has me scratching my head. My I gotta see that moments, and I'm gonna have you send them to me. Okay. Okay. Because these are going to be audio podcasts eventually, but they're YouTube now. Yeah. And YouTube benefits from visuals. Right. So listen, John, we're at about a half hour. And you and I have all the freedom in the world to do as many of these as we want. So I'm going to sign off, uh, barring anything you want to do, any statements you want to make before I do so. Nope. I think and, well, so here's the story, sir. Yes. One thing in this interview that really disturbed me, and that was that you went through this long period of inactivity and you only recently jumped back on it. Uh -huh. uh, if that did you some good, great, all hail. But if not, man, the world needs you working. You know, you are, you are, you're the visuals to a very large community and a very large mindset. And I am glad I can see your work every day. Okay, sir. Thank you. All right. Thank you, John. All right, man. Take care. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.